When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he came down from the mountains, mountain, <clears throat> Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out he told, and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twin, tw fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hook and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and its all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light. And, all, and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door and the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, the pillar and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and, and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicated an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarn or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contrib contribution of silver or bronze bought it as a, the Lord's com contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every... Skillful woman 
spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair, and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light, and for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Before we hear the word preached, I thought we ought as a church family to pray together for uh, for John and Bethana Cordy. And uh, John and Bethana, if you are watching via the live stream, our hearts are with you. Uh, this is uh, the 14th, I think the 14th day that John has been in the hospital there in Arizona City, Arizona. And we just, we want to lift our brother up before the Lord. Maybe you followed um, uh, what's going on with them. He was diagnosed uh, this week with stage four esophageal cancer that is spread to his lungs and his lymph nodes. And so we, we want to lift, lift them to the Lord. And Lord willing, he begins a chemo tomorrow. So before we open the word, let's remember them if we can as a church family. Our Father, we are so thankful at this moment that even when technology blinks because of a thunderstorm, that there's not a drop of rain, there's not that falls nor hair from our head that you've not ordained. Lord, we profess you are in the heavens. Our God, you are in the heavens. You do whatever you please. So now we also commend John of Bethana to you and pray for your sustaining grace for them in this hour. You know that which they need. We pray that your kindness might be shown to them and that you might even be pleased by your grace, Lord Jesus, to, to heal our brother and that you would come and be with them at this hour and tomorrow as John begins to chemo. We pray that whatever needs to take place that he could begin, that would be the case and that you would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus this the Lord is our prayer. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I notice that the time is 12.11, so this may be a really long sermon based on that clock up there. You, If anyone needs to use the restroom or get a drink or something like that, I think that will serve you well. We're going to be here a while. Imagine the remarks on the way as the children of Israel brought materials for the tabernacle, the furnishings, the courtyard, and the holy garments for the priests. It's kind of like if you've ever seen kids in a race. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're swimming or they're running, they're looking to the side to try to see just how they compare to everyone beside them. And maybe 
someone was thinking like this on their way bringing the materials. Hey, why does that person only bring one set of earrings? Like, I know they've got six or seven at home. Or maybe another thinks to herself, I worked so hard to spin these different colored yarns. I've worked my fingers to the bones. But the amount I'm bringing seems so small compared to Rachel over there. Like she's got her whole family helping her bring all the stuff and she can, they can hardly carry it. And why should I even bother to bring my little, my little clutch of yarn? And depending how our heads are swiveled and who we're comparing ourselves to, we might feel so superior to the giving of others that we would give out that smug sense, we give out that smug sense of being better. We feel so inferior by compare, or maybe we feel so inferior by comparison that we would withhold what we could offer out of a gospel vacant sense of inferiority. But the Apostle James says this, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And by corollary, I think sometimes we have, but we do not share. We share not. You do not have because you do not ask. And then we, we have, but we do not share. And so it brings us to the big idea of our message tonight. Jesus' lordship, if you're a Christian, his lordship includes all that we are all that we have and all the gifts that we possess. It's the reason that the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, why do you brag as though you're not conscious that everything you have has been given to you? And that's why the apostles could see their entire ministry with two metaphors. Stewards, that is, those who would have to give an account, accountability, and servants, those who with basin and towel would bend in this act of humble service. And our giving then is the relinquishment of what we have for a greater cause. And our spiritual gifts are to be exercised for the same greater good. And so tonight, I want us to consider giving and gifts as we open up this passage which is the fulfillment, it's the implementation of the instructions that the Lord gave to Moses when he was on the mountain the very first time for 40 days and 40 nights. We find that in Exodus 25, 1 through 9. And Moses enters the cloud on Mount Sinai in response to the Lord's summons. And the Lord begins this particular portion of his revelation to Moses, that is Exodus 25, with instructions about contributions for the sanctuary. I want you to think about that. That word sanctuary from from Exodus 25, 8, we read, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is at the heart of the new covenant. God desires to dwell with us his people, and for us to dwell with him as our God. And now then in chapter 35, Moses communicates those instructions to the people of Israel. Here's our outline for tonight. Number one, we see in those last seven verses of chapter 34, the setting 
for the instructions. Then we get a Sabbath reminder in the first three verses of chapter 35. And then finally, we hear about the sanctuary contribution. So the setting for the instructions, the end of chapter 34, a Sabbath reminder, chapter 35, 1 through 3, and then sanctuary contributions for much of chapter 35. Well, first, the setting for the instructions. Think about this. What was the setting? We find it there at the end of 34. And it overlaps with our message from last Sunday's message. Moses with tablets in hand and shining face, he comes down from the mountain after speaking with and hearing from Yahweh himself. Yes, the one who gave this self-proclamation speech that is our verses of the month from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. His face was veiled in a sense like the Lord's, except when he was speaking to the Lord in the tent of meeting, chapter 33, verse 7, or with the people of Israel. We're told that there at the end of 34. And Paul would later reference this scene in 2 Corinthians 3 to teach that life under the old covenant actually really obscured hope, as was fitting, if you will, for hardened hearts so that only in Christ Jesus was the veil of the law finally and ultimately removed. Paul says this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And that's the setting, then, for the instructions that will follow, beginning in verse 4, chapter 35. But second, there's a Sabbath reminder. We see this in the first three verses of chapter 35. And you think it looks random, like this just squirrel moment by God, as though God is distracted from the message he's really going to give because a squirrel just ran out in front of him. But it's not. It's not an unintentional insertion or excursion in these first three verses. And don't shoot the messenger. I want you to look then at Moses' introduction. He says, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do there at the end of verse 1. Moses is conveying God's message like a faithful prophet, not his own. So there's a question, why this repetition, this focus again on the fourth commandment? We've already seen that, not just when it was given initially in Exodus 20 as the fourth word, but also in chapter 23 and then in chapter 31. He gives this fresh expression, a re-expression of the fourth commandment by picking up with this second line of the Sabbath commandment. And God, through Moses here, keeps repeating from chapter 20 to 23 to 31 and now in 35, he's repeating the requirement of the Sabbath. And here again is an emphasis on positively working six days while resting on the seventh. He says, on the seventh day, you shall have a solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Not joyless, but 
a sober joy, a solemn rest, holy to the Lord. And so serious was the mind of God here for Israel that the penalty was death for Sabbath breakers. As Pastor Jamie was noting this morning from Hebrews 7, we get these occasional reminders, and not just occasional, but quite frequent reminders that to God, sin is a serious reminder. So serious that the penalty was death. And those who worked on the seventh day and did not honor that seventh day as a solemn day of rest and sanctify it, set it apart as holy to the Lord, for them the penalty was death. Think about this. Even something so innocent as kindling a fire in their dwelling on the Sabbath day was forbidden. So here's a question. And kids, you have to, you got to wrestle with this. Is God the great joy killer? Do you think of God's goal to smother your joy and kill it? No. The Sabbath, now the Lord's day for us in the Christian era, was meant for man, the Lord Jesus says. But it pointed to God who was the first to rest. And as he set the day apart, he sanctified it. So he tells us in Exodus 31, 13, that he sanctifies you and he sanctifies me. So could it be this? Could it just be that God in gracious condescension is re-emphasizing the Sabbath and its rest immediately before putting the people of Israel to work as he gives them their commission to make contributions for everything connected with the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. I think so. It makes sense. It's just like if tomorrow you know you have an incredibly long day and you have much to accomplish, you think, I'm getting to bed early. I'm setting my alarm. I'm going to eat a healthy breakfast. I'm going to make sure I've made provision for a really good lunch because I got a long ways to go tomorrow and a short time to get there. I think that's the idea here in this emphasis on the Sabbath. Well, thirdly, I'm doing great time-wise. I see it's only 1222. I'm really encouraged by that. As we come, thirdly, we want to think about the contributions for the sanctuary. And I think it's helpful, it's okay to use these two things side by side. So that tabernacle is the technical term related to what's being constructed. But the idea is that God wants to dwell with his people and that dwelling is to be a sanctuary. It's a holy place. And so we've considered the setting for the instructions. We've seen that Israel was given a fresh reminder of the Sabbath. Now we come to the contributions for the sanctuary itself from verse 4 through verse 29. And I want you to see how giving and gifts will come into view. And so let me distinguish, because these can blur together. So especially kids, when we say giving, we're talking about taking particularly our treasure, maybe our money. In some cultures, in some churches, people don't have money and they they give to the church 
for the pastor's support, they might give a bag of rice or a watermelon or 12, uh, 12 things of corn, something like that. But when we think of giving here, we're thinking as we see everyone bringing stuff for the tabernacle and its furnishings, for the moment, let's think of the way we give of the money that God entrusts us. Remember this principle. You own nothing. Psalm 24 says, everything is the Lord. Everything in the earth. You and I are just stewards. God puts it in our hand to make wise use of it for a special and short period of time. So there's giving, but there are gifts. Gifts are those abilities that God has given to you that others recognize in you and that you are cultivating to advance his cause in the world and make his name great and not your own. That's what a gift is in this context. So I want us to see just six things and we'll be done. Six things, six special truths about the giving and gifts for the sanctuary contributions. And what I want to encourage you to do is if you have your Bible open, just follow with me. This is not verse by verse, but we're going to take the whole of these 26 verses and condense them into six truths. Number one, I want you to see that no one was excluded. No person was excluded from hearing the message about the contributions for the tabernacle. Moses here does not go into executive session and only invite those whom he knew had six-figure salaries and lay out the need. It's that he assembled all the congregation. All right? It's that we read that there in verse 1, but in verse 4, he said to all the congregation of the people of Israel. Now, all we sometimes know does not mean all, but in this case, all means all and not some. None among the people of Israel could claim that they were singled out or they were left out. This was a message and an opportunity for the whole community to rise up respond and make a difference. And here's the point. Virtually everyone here, and it doesn't matter if you're six years of age, five years of age, or 90. Everyone has something to give. You have time. You have talent that is gifting, and you have treasure. So not only was no one excluded. Secondly, I want you to see that the initiative was God's. The initiative was delivered through Moses as God's prophet. And it points to legitimate God-ordained authority. He says, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. He does what every faithful ambassador does. He delivers, or envoy does, he delivers the ambassador's message. Look there in verse 4. This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. And then in verse 10, make all that the Lord has commanded. You don't see one shred of self-interest here in what Moses is delivering. This was not Moses' idea to which he was seeking God's sponsorship or backing. After all, the tabernacle, a technical term is a type of structure, right, Serving as God's sanctuary, it was God's idea from first to last. You can look at this if you turn to 
Exodus 25 and verse 8, God says to Moses to deliver this message and let them make me a sanctuary. It was his sanctuary. Number two, it was designed for his purpose that I may dwell in their midst at the very heart of the language of the new covenant. And thirdly, it was to be built according to his design and specifications. Look what he says there in verse 9. As some Puritan says, I, that we, he says, serve a precise God. Look what God says. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So it is with baptism. So it is with the Lord's Supper. We don't need to innovate. What do we need to do? We need to imitate. We don't need to get wiser than what God has entrusted to us, his church. So no one was excluded. Secondly, the initiative was God's. Third, I want you to see that the contribution at its essence was a contribution to the Lord. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. And then at the second part of the verse, the Lord's contribution. Now look at verse 21. They brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. And I'm pretty sure there were no statements of giving given out to the people of Israel. If you think about it, when, at the end of the year, when you get your giving statement, it's like a contribution statement. But in this case, the way we want to think of about it is not so much that so-and-so gave this, but that it was the Lord's. It's the Lord's contribution. The emphasis is on the Lord is the one who is to receive it, not so much on who has given it. The Lord is not the one contributing it. He's receiving it. But the language is that it is both a contribution to the Lord, but also simply his by right of ownership and use. It was for his sanctuary that he might dwell in the midst of his people, and it was to be built according to his specifications. There's a fourth thing I want us to see, and that is giving is a matter of the heart. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then so then out of the abundance of that same heart, your hand gives or it withholds. This is the universal law of how our hands and our heart coordinate. It's the point. It's the point of verse five. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring. And then verse 21. And they came everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. And notice the emphasis on the voluntary offering of God's people. We do not read go and get in verse 5, but let him bring. There's no warrant for shaking God's people down to give. Because God knew God knows that this is a matter of the heart. It was Martin Luther that said the Christian life has three conversions. 
He said people go through three conversions. The conversion of their head, their heart, and their pocketbook. And he said he lamented, unfortunately, not all at the same time. But kids, this is important. I don't want you to hear this. The amount of what you give is never the issue. Never. Never. Okay? But the heart is the issue. For someone has said the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And maybe some of you could correct me, but I believe the only times... The only time that Jesus ever commended someone for, the, for their giving was the widow who clanked or clunked or clinked two copper coins in the offering box. And he said this to the disciples who watched. This is in Mark 12, 43 through 44. He said, truly I say to you, this poor widow with the clinking two copper pennies has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. The amount's not the issue. Many of you know that with this call, look to me and live on a snowy winter England night. Charles Spurgeon is a seven, I don't know, 16 or 17-year-old youth. He ended up and pulled into this church. The pastor was not there, and a deacon was preaching. We don't know. There's, there's no record of that deacon sermon on sermon audio or on Facebook with all these likes or whatever. But the prince of preachers from that one little moment of virtual anonymity in the history of the church, preached a sermon, and one Charles Haddon Spurgeon heard that sermon, looked to me and live, and he responded. The offering of one little sermon by a conscripted diaconate preacher on a winter night was used by God really to change the course of history and for England with the gospel. There's a fifth thing I want us to see, and that is, I want you to see alignment. Look in verse 21. You'll see this alignment. That which was needed was requested by the Lord. And what was requested was contributed by the people of Israel. And we don't know if, like, was there a big giving weekend and everyone brought? There's no sense of that. Maybe it was a week, three weeks, three months, a year. We don't know. We're not told. But what was needed was requested. What was requested was contributed by the people of Israel. And what was contributed was ultimately used by the craftsmen. No doubt there was some leftover. I have no doubt about that. But there was this perfect alignment from the initial request until the final piece For each piece and every part of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, for the furnishings, for the courtyard and the holy garments, for the priests, were all completed. And if you take Exodus 25 through 28, where God gives the whole content of this to Moses, and then Exodus 35 through 39, 
you'll find a virtual and perfect correspondence between the message that was given to Moses and how he conveyed it to the people of Israel. I want us to see then, finally, our sixth point. So I want us to see the diversity, to observe the diversity of giving and gifts. I want us to see who gave, what they gave, and even the distinction of quality and quantity. There were those who brought material goods. It's actually an act of love to bring really good macaroni and cheese or poppy seed chicken to a fellowship meal on a Sunday. There's no distinction here. There's nothing evil about the material realm. We are not to cast or create a spirituality that diminishes material things in a material realm. And you can read all about that, though, in verses 5 through 9. All those basic things that were needed. And I think we can fairly imagine that there was great variety in the type, maybe the quality and the quantity of what was offered. I can imagine this gal looking, like, coming up, and they're offering the spun yarn, and she kind of looks to one side and like, well, that gal's yard's a little brighter. That's a little better looking than my own. But they just put it down, right? Some of what was offered was raw. It was like a, just a stick of acacia wood. Some of it was refined, like a gold brooch or necklace or earrings. Some of it was crafted like yarns and linen and goat hair. And speaking of yarns and linen and goat hair, notice that some people, they just already possessed it. Verse 23, everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns of Fine linen or goat's hair or tan rams, skins or goat skins, it brought them. But some women put in the effort to spend freshly produced ones of the same type, right? And that's why it's like on a fellowship meal. It doesn't matter. You bring homemade fried chicken or it's evident you dropped in on Food Lion and brought your own from the deli. It's okay. It's all right. They're given. All right? I want you to see also how, see who gave. Think about the broad categories of those who gave. Verse 5, whoever is of generous heart. In a way, you don't have to say, like, there weren't that many who had stingy hearts that actually gave. Like, they just kept it, okay? There were those who were skillful craftsmen. Maybe some of you think, I don't really have great gifts but I can sit with someone. I could watch someone's children while their mommy goes to a doctor's appointment. I could make a casserole for someone who's sick. I could sit with someone and let them talk and pour out their heart in grief while I give the gift of time. All gifts don't require require a complicated gifting to benefit the people of God. There were both men and women. I want you to see that in verse 22. There were those who are of a willing heart, verse 22. Look in verse 23, the idea of everyone who possessed. It was just a sense of everyone taking stock of what they had asset-wise and then relinquishing it. And I want you to notice that he did not give what they did not possess, nor could they volunteer skills that they did not have 
Look in verse 24. Everyone who could make a contribution. Look in verse 25. Every skillful woman. There were skilled men. There were skilled women. Look at verse 25. All the women whose heart stirred them. Even in verse 27. And the leaders brought. You'll notice they weren't excluded either. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And it's all summarized. Look at verse 29. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, they brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Notice, though, that others offered their skills And we'll get into that more in two weeks. They were the skillful craftsmen among the people of Israel. You see that in verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come. And I think it's interesting. They gave up their skills. There's no distinction. He doesn't say if their heart moved them. But simply, if they had skill, let them come. All right? It was assumed if they had skill, they would offer it. It seemed to be different, something different than the other, the other areas of material contribution. They would give up their skills and time to help construct all the, the parts and pieces of the tabernacle and its accompanying furniture in the holy garments of the priests. And I think it included both men and women. And I think, kids, let me say this. You don't really read about children here in this, but it's implied. I want to tell you this. Because the lives of families typically were more integrated in that day. And so I think, though we're not told it specifically, I think we can assume that the children of families contributed as well. You know, it was two or three weeks ago that a boy wrote a note to Pastor Jamie and me, and he apologized for only giving $7 and 40 cents to missions so that the gospel could spread to the nations. You see, that boy's heart moved him to give what he could, anything. Do you see that there in verse 29? To bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses. Could you just imagine a little boy or girl carrying a single acacia stick that would be used as a bar and eventually clad with gold. And maybe some other guy in his like supersized F-350 truck had the big pile of the acacia wood. Doesn't matter. The amount's never the issue. It's a matter of the heart. Well, let me conclude with this. At the end of the day, Christianity is about the heart, about the affections and desires of your heart. And giving, as we've seen, is like that as well. What God intends to do among his people, he first does in their hearts. It's about the heart. Willingness is not about the wallet, but about the center of your soul. And when you're Christ, you can give freely, generously, cheerfully, actually recklessly, wantonly. You may give to others of all that you have, your heart, your material goods, 
your time, your skills, your attention, your empathy, your undivided attention, your shared joy, your sincere sorrow, a second chance, and even forgiveness. And listen to me here. In God's economy, you cannot give yourself away or anything that you own to the point of poverty or lacking. For he has told us through the psalmist, through the words of the psalmist, he says, I've been young and I've been old, but there's two things. There's something that the eyes of the psalmist have never seen, and that is the righteous or his descendants begging bread. There's a caveat here, though. You must be taking in Christ as your soul's soul nourishment. For this is the one who says, I am the bread of life. I am the fountain of the living, he says in Jeremiah 17, 13, of the living water. And if you're not constantly, consistently taking Christ into your soul as the bread of life and the fountain of living water, you will eventually find yourself broken down, empty, joyless, fruitless. And that's true both for your giving and the exercise of your gifts. So let me ask by way of application. Do you give faithfully, generously, intentionally from the heart as an act of worship, but also as an expression of faithful membership? By the way, I should have added joyfully, joyfully. Do you see giving as a privilege? If not, what are you afraid of? Do you think that God would ask something of you that then would place you in a position that not, that not even his promises could protect you from. Do you think that's possible? It's not, okay? And second, let me ask you this. Have you identified your areas of gifting and put them to use? The body actually needs every member's contribution. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 12. As he thought about the advance of the gospel and how it speeds forward when every member does its part. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's like when you have two, a whole group pulling on this end of the rope and a whole group pulling on that end of the rope. And then someone thinks they'll be funny. Someone that's really strong, they just let go of the rope. And that whole thing just collapses to one side. We need Every member's spiritual gift contribution. What a day that would be when our hearts have moved us to where we give generously, not just of our material possessions, but we really implore, we steward our spiritual gifts. Finally, a final word and we'll be done. And I mean this especially if you might not be a Christian. To turn to Christ. It means that we relinquish and renounce everything that is not Christ honoring or important to Jesus as the Son of God. I remember a few years ago, we were up on a rocky ledge at Lake Jocassi. And you're always thinking when you jump, 
Can you jump far enough away from the cliff that you don't scrape yourself to death going down? But also, is the water deep enough that you don't hit rock bottom? Do you know what it means to turn to Christ and to relinquish and renounce everything that's not Christ-honoring or important to him? It's to believe when you, by faith, jump into his embrace You no longer worry about the bottom because there is none, because you can never get to the bottom of that free, unlimited, eternal, without cost to you, love of the Father in the Son. And so there's really only two responses to the gospel, repentance and faith. And in a sense, our ultimate act of giving is to give ourselves without reservation to him who did the same for us on the cross. Pastor Jamie mentioned this morning that no one took the life of our Lord Jesus. For he said this in John ten eighteen: no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. If you have not, surrender. Put aside your weapons of defense. Count everything as lost that is not Christ and him crucified and come. He, the giver of every good and perfect gift, will receive even you.